Faith Fit Radio and the Diocese of Orlando presents Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery, a program that is seeking to lead young adults to Christ and to enkindle a deeper faith that is fully alive. Now, here is your host. Welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths and people of no faith. Last week, we were looking at Jesus, the new Adam, and we were looking at this notion that all of us were born with what we call original sin. Original sin is not a personal sin. It's just that you and I have in us a tendency to do wrong. Our intellect is darkened, our will is weakened, our passions incline us to sin. And so as we come of age, each person commits personal sin. What is a sin? When Jesus was asked, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest of all the commandments. The second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets also. So now, sin ultimately is disobedience. So since we are asked to love God with our whole heart, with our whole soul, and with our whole mind, when we do not love God, when we do not love and obey God, then we sin. And the same goes when we do not love, respect, and honor our neighbor, we sin. If you were to go from this section that I just read to you, which is in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, back to the first book of the Bible, chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, you'll find that Adam and Eve broke the commandment. They didn't obey God, and they didn't love God with their whole heart, with their whole soul, and with their whole mind. And we'll find in chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain didn't love his brother because he cut his throat. Now, it's just a fact of life that everybody I know and have known and ever will know at some stage or other will sin. They will do what is wrong. They will be tempted by the evil spirit and give in to sin. You say you don't believe in evil spirits. I do. I will tell you why. I heard the case of a boy who had an old bike. He brought it to a bike shop to have a 10-speed gear shift put in. When he went to pick up the bike, he found that he would have to pay $200 for the repairs. The boy did not have the money. He had never dreamed that it would cost so much. The repairman saw his hesitation and said sharply, if you don't come up with the money before the end of the month, I will sell your bike for my costs. The boy returned home and tried everywhere to obtain the money. No one was willing to give him such a sum. It was too much. The boy was desperate. Then one day, the door of a house in the neighborhood was left open. The boy asked some people around whether there was anybody in the house. They said, no. 
Seeing an opportunity when no one was in sight, the boy slipped into the house. When he came out with a radio cassette recorder, he was caught and apprehended. Now he stood face to face with, with his captors. In tears, he protested over and over again, Don't call me a thief. I am not a thief. I am not a thief. One of them remarked, All right, you say you are not a thief, but who stole that radio? The radio stood in front of him on the table. For a moment, the boy was silent. Then he said, looking at it, the bicycle. What he said was not true. It was nonsense. But in a way, what he said was right. His bicycle had come so important to him that it overruled and overpowered every other consideration. He had become obsessed by it. His bike was like an evil spirit dominating him. He was only a child, but how many of us, older and supposedly wiser, are not obsessed as the boy was with the thought of something we want, a car, a promotion, a VCR, a house. If we are not careful, those justifiable desires can take over and control us completely. They can blind, paralyze, and deafen us. It is very necessary in our lives that we chase away those evil spirits. That is perhaps the reason why Jesus so often drove them away. So should we, with his help, drive them away from us and from around us, and our world will be happier. One of my most favorite sinners in the whole Bible is the great King David. King David was a man of blood. He was uh, a murderer. Um, he was an adulterer. He was a peep and tom. He led others astray. And yet Christ, Jesus, was born from, from the house of David. Now the story of David that I'm going to tell you uh, is taken from the second book of uh, Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. But most of the story I will tell you out of my memory. Now David... Uh, you may have heard about him uh, when you were a child. He was the one who took on the giant Goliath. He went out against him armed only with a slingshot and five smooth stones. David was the second king of Israel, the second king of the Jews, the first one being Saul, who was inclined towards depression and was eventually rejected by God. At the turn of the year, the time when kings go campaigning, David sent Joab, the commander-in-chief, and with him his own guards and the whole of Israel. They massacred the Ammonites and laid siege to Rabbah. David, however, remained in Jerusalem. Now it happened towards evening when David had risen from his couch and was strolling on the palace roof that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, there's a question in my mind here. What was the woman doing uh, taking a bath in a place where she could be seen? Was she a flasher in some way, shape, or form? Who knows? David made inquiries about this woman and was told, why, that is Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and had her brought to the palace. She came to him 
and he slept with her. It's nice the way they use the word, he slept with her. If that's all he did, there wouldn't, wouldn't have been any trouble. He actually had sex with her. He committed adultery. Now, she had just purified herself from her courses. She then went home again. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I am with child. Now, so here we have uh, a peeping Tom in the person of King David. We have perhaps a flasher in the person of Bathsheba. She's also a married woman, and both of them commit the sin of adultery. Then David sent Job, the commander-in-chief, a message, Send me Uriah the Hittite, whereupon Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came into his presence, David, hypocrite that he was, asked after Job and the army and how the war was going. David then said to Uriah, to Uriah, go down to your house and enjoy yourself. Uriah left the palace and was followed by a present from the king's table. Uriah, however, slept by the palace door with his master's bodyguard and did not go down to his house. This was reported to David. Uriah, they said, did not go down to his house. So David asked Uriah, have you not just arrived from a journey? Why do you not go to your home? But Uriah answered, Are not the ark and the men of Israel and Judah lodged in tents, and my master Job and the bodyguard of my Lord, are they not in the open fields? Am I to go down to my house then, and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? Actually, from what I understand, men at that time were obliged to um, practice celibacy while they were fighting a battle. Wouldn't it be good if this happened all the time? We wouldn't have a lot of uh, American Sino children running around in, in Vietnam and places of that nature. So he says, am I to go to my house then and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As God lives and as you yourself live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay on here today. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed that day in Jerusalem. The next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. Nice guy, this David, isn't he? In the evening, Uriah went out and lay on his couch with his master's bodyguard, but he did not go down to his house. Perhaps David was thinking that in his drunken condition, he would go down to his house and then having sex with his wife, he would think that the baby to be born uh, was his. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander-in-chief, and sent it by Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Station Uriah in the thick of the fight, and then fall back behind him, so that he may be struck down and die. Now, Job, then besieging the town, posted Uriah in a place where he knew there were fierce fighters. The men of the town sallied out and engaged Joab. The army suffered casualties, including some of David's bodyguard, and Uriah the Hittite was killed too. Extraordinary, isn't it? So here, look at the story now so far. David, strolling on the roof of his, of his palace, sees a woman taking a bath. He's consumed with lust, apparently, for this woman, even though he has a number of women in his own harem. And she, for her part, um, is easily led astray, apparently. 
Now, once the two of them come with child, David, anxious to get rid of the guilt or whatever, um, tries to get the husband to assume responsibility for the child, and when he doesn't succeed in that matter, he has him killed. I suppose David said to himself, I have gotten away with murder. However, the Lord God of hosts, blessed be his holy name, knows our every thought and our every action, and he knows what motivates us. So the Lord God raised up the prophet Nathan and sent him to David. Now, I have no basis for saying this, but it's my imagination. I visualize Nathan as being a senior citizen, as being 70 to 75, arthritic fingers, uh, you know, social security and all that stuff. God sent Nathan the prophet to David. He came to him and said, now here's a very interesting thing here. David has thought he has gotten away with murder and adultery and lust and a lot of other things and along comes Nathan and he arrives and David welcomes him, you know, typical. So Nathan then says to David, in the same town were two men, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had flocks and herds in great abundance. The poor man had nothing but a ewe lamb, one only, a small one he had bought. This he fed, and it grew up with him and his children, eating his bread, drinking from his cup, sleeping on his breast. It was like a daughter to him. Then there came a traveler to stay with the rich man, and he refused to take a lamb from his own flock to provide for the, vi the visitor who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now David's anger flared up against the man. As God lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this deserves to die. He must make fourfold restitution for the lamb for doing such a thing and showing no compassion. Then David, then Nathan rather, pointing his social security finger at David, says to him, you are the man. And he was, because David had all these women in his own harem and, um, and his own wives, and yet he steals the wife of Uriah and had him killed. Now, the wonderful thing about, about David is that he repents. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against God. Then Nathan said to David, God, for his part, forgives your sin. You are not to die. Yet, because you have outraged God by doing this, the child that is born to you is to die. Then Nathan went home. The wonderful thing about God is that God is a God who forgives. He says to us, I think it's true, the prophet Isaiah, come now, let us set things right. If your sins are as black as sackcloth, I will make them as white as snow. If your sins are as red as scarlet, I will make them as white as wool. The great David, um, when he committed all these terrible sins, had the grace to repent. And in fact, he wrote an extraordinary hymn of repentance, and you'll find that it's Psalm 51 in the Bible, and it's a lovely uh, hymn 
to say for yourself even if you have lived a life of sin and now you are willing to repent. Listen to it. Have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness. In your great tenderness, wipe away my faults. Wash me clean from my sin. Purify me from my guilt. For I am well aware of my faults. I have my sin constantly in mind. Having sinned against none other than you, having done what you regard as wrong. You are just when you pass sentence on me, blameless when you give judgment. You know I was born guilty, a sinner from the moment of conception. Yet since you love sincerity of heart, teach me the secrets of wisdom. Purify me with hyssop until I am clean. Wash me until I am whiter than snow. Instill some joy and gladness into me, that the bones you have crushed rejoice again. Hide your face from my sins, wipe out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart in me, put into me a new and constant spirit. Do not banish me from your presence, do not deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Be my saviour again, renew my joy. Keep my spirit steady and willing, and I shall teach transgressors the way to you, and to you the sinners will return. Save me from death, God my Saviour, and my tongue will acclaim your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will speak out your praise. Sacrifice gives you no pleasure. Were I to offer holocaust, you would not have it. My sacrifice is this broken spirit. You will not scorn this crushed and broken heart. And it's true, God will not scorn anybody who has a crushed and broken heart, especially over the sins they have committed in their past. Again, I draw to your attention that in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, the apostles of Jesus had locked the doors of the room where they were, um, I suppose they were afraid that what happened to, to Jesus uh, would happen to them. Maybe that the Roman soldiers would put them, them to death. And all of a sudden, in this situation, Jesus appears to them. Now, how we got into the room, I don't know. Uh, but the risen Christ, apparently, does not have the limitations that you and I have. So even though the doors were locked, he appears to them. John 20, verse 19. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. Now watch this. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. So the first action of the risen Christ after he rose from the dead was to give his church the power to forgive sins in his name. So if you are particularly of a Catholic denomination, and uh, you're aware of this, then I 
I would simply say to you that if you do have within you the leprosy of serious sin, no matter how bad it is, if you repent, then go show yourself to the priest. And in Christ's name, if you are sorry for your sins and confess them, you will be forgiven. Now remember, it is not the priest who forgives you your sins. It is the risen Christ through the ministry of his priest who forgives you your sins. It's a little bit like uh, somebody with the gift of healing. The preacher or the priest doesn't heal you. It is Christ, and the uh, priest or preacher or lay person is simply the instrument of Christ's healing. I would now like to introduce you to a rather technical term. It's um, When it comes to studying the Bible, scholars have recognized that in the Bible there is something called typology or types. Let me give you an example. Most people would be aware of the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh and he was to preach repentance. He was to say to them, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now apparently uh, Jonah hated the Ninevites for whatever reason. They were certainly, they were non-Jews and why should he bring the message of salvation to them? And as you know, he tried to get away. He got into a ship and tried to get away. And, but he ran into a storm in the middle of the bay. And basically, the story says that um, the sailors were very concerned that they had angered the gods in some way. And when they discovered that, in fact, Jonah was running away from God, not wishing to deliver God's message to the Ninevites, they pulled Jonah out of the hold of the ship and threw him overboard. And the story goes that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Now, Jonah must have been a bad man. He must have been a sinner because when the whale got him down, he didn't like his dinner. And the whale swam around the ocean, sick as he could be. And after three days, the whale said, Jonah free. Now, the whale spit Jonah out on the dry land, and he went on a preaching like a righteous man. Now, you'll say to yourself, now, that one's a bit too much. Give me a break here. You mean, you want me to believe that a man was uh, swallowed by a great fish, perhaps a whale, and lived in the belly of the whale for three days, and all those gastric juices down there? And then you want me to, to believe that Jonah was spit out of the whale. Well, you're looking at it from a Western point of view. You're asking a very scientific question. Is it possible? Did it happen? Um, could a man be swallowed by a whale and live uh, for three days in the belly of the whale? And then imagine all those gastric juices. So scientifically, if you look at it that way, I'd say, no, not at all. Not at all. I don't believe that uh, a man was literally swallowed uh, by a great fish or a whale. The question to ask is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, later on in history, um, Jesus will be confronted by the leaders of the people, and they'll say to him, give us a sign that you are the Son of God. And he'll say to them, it is an evil and perverse generation that asks for a sign, and the only sign that will be given to it is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was buried in the belly of the whale, 
so must the Son of Man, namely Jesus, be buried in the belly of the earth and after three days rise again. Now, that's what we mean by typology, that the story of Jonah in the belly of the whale is a type of what's coming in the future, Jesus in the belly of the earth, in the tomb, and rising again on the third day. That's called typology. Here's another example of it. Um, back in Old Testament times, God says to Abraham, kill me your son. And off Abraham goes with his son Isaac to Mount Moriah. And as they're walking along, uh, Abraham's son Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice. And Isaac says to his father Abraham, he said, uh, here is the wood and here is the knife and here is the fire. Um, where is the sacrifice? At this stage, apparently, he doesn't know that he is to be the sacrifice. So here we have an old man, Abraham, and his son Isaac carrying some wood to the top of a hill. Does it remind you of anything? I bet you you got it without too much of an effort. Later on in history, Jesus will carry a plank of wood to the top of a hill. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him may not die, but may have eternal life. So Abraham is a type of God the Father. Isaac is the type of Jesus. Isaac carries the wood to the top of Mount Moriah. Jesus carries the wood to the top of Mount Calvary. Now, using the scripture in this way, uh, leprosy is a type of sin. In Old Testament times, if a man or a woman developed, we'll say, what appeared to be a leprous spot um, on their skin, like if the skin turned a flaky and a chalk white, the first thing they do was they go and show themselves to the priest because the priest was the guardian of the tribe. And if in fact it was um, leprosy, and leprosy being highly contagious, or at least they thought so, um, the priest then would excommunicate the leper from the tribe of Israel. He'd have to go off into a desert place to live by himself. And if anybody approached, he would cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Now, if by some miracle this particular leper was healed, he wouldn't just go back to his wife and family. He'd have to go and show himself to the priest and offer the customary sacrifices. And if the priest, in fact, determined then that he was cured, then the priest would allow him to go home and back to his family. So this leprosy. Now, leprosy is a type of sin. Supposing we say, for the sake of interest, that I do something terrible, that I um, would say pay for an abortion, uh, that I commit the sin of adultery, now, by doing that, I am becoming a leper. I, I have spiritual leprosy. I excommunicate myself from the Christian community. Um, it's like, you know, if you do something terribly, terribly wrong, it very often plunges you into depression, and you feel that you couldn't even look at a picture of Jesus or even think about God because your sin can be all-consuming. And so you kind of are excommunicated, you're cut off, you feel unclean or, or dirty. So what are we to do? 
Well, in New Testament times, there's a story where Jesus was traveling along the borders of Samaria and Galilee, and there met him ten men who were lepers, and they cried out from a distance, Jesus, son of David, have pity on us. And Jesus said to them, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were made well. Well, now, there's the teaching of Scripture then about sin, that when we sin, especially commit serious sin, Jesus says to the sinner, go show yourself to the priest. Again, just to remind you, it was the risen Lord who gave his authority to his church to forgive sins in his name. And you'll find it in the chapter in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, verses 19 to uh, 23. And Jesus breathes on his disciples, his apostles rather, and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven them. If you hold them bound, they are held bound. So Jesus tells us to go show ourselves to the priests when we sin, uh, because they have his authority to forgive his, to forgive their sins in his name. Well, thank you for listening to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths, and for people of no faith. My name is Patrick J. O'Doherty. I'm a priest and a recovering sinner. I'm also the pastor of Queen of Peace Catholic Church on State Road 200. That's in Ocala, Florida, in the United States of America, in the Western Hemisphere, in the world in the universe and in the mind of God. Shalom. Faith Fit Radio and the Dice of Orlando presented Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery. Thank you for listening. Check out the podcast at faithfitradio.org and tune in next time. May you be blessed with peace and joy.